um, this morning. Um, if you didn't know yet, or if we hadn't caught on, or uh, maybe you're just visiting this morning, uh, we have been going through the names of God for uh, the Advent season, and so we've been kind of picking different ones, uh, or the names of Jesus, I guess it's a little more specifically. Um, <clears throat> and so we've can, can been kind of picking different ones, and some of the artwork, you know, is different names of Jesus. Pastor Randall's been going over some of the different names of Jesus, and I told Lorena about a, a week or so ago, um, once I knew for sure that Pastor Randall was going to be gone and I would be preaching that um, I was going to do Lamb of God, even though we already have a, um, <clears throat> a picture with the Lamb. Um, I thought it would be good to kind of focus on that this morning, and as I was um, thinking of, you know, where do we, how does this tie into um, Christmas, um, I kind of think of, I thought of the uh, <clears throat> a nativity scene, right? We've all seen them probably hundreds of times already, even this month. Um, and when you look at a nativity scene, um, it wouldn't be complete in all reality, although I think that, oh, there it is on your left, um, without a lamb, right? If you were to look at a nativity and it didn't have a lamb or a sheep of some sort, I think you would probably wonder what's missing, right? There's, it wouldn't look like it was complete. I don't just because that's part of the nativity scene. It's part of the nativity story, um, whether it's because of the shepherds or the fact that they're in um, a manger where animals um, would have been. But it just wouldn't be complete without a lamb present. And um, when you think of a lamb, if you were here last Christmas. Um, Paul was able to bring a, a real live lamb up on stage, um, and its bleeding sound um, stops us in our tracks. But when you think of a lamb, especially a, a younger, you know, a baby lamb, they're so innocent, they're cute, they're, uh, you know, when many people see a lamb, their first response is, oh, like it's just so cute and cuddly, right? It, it's like this sense of peace and calmness and um, so when we read, if you have your Bibles and you want to open up to John 129, and you see and you hear in John 129 that Jesus is the Lamb of God, um, the words that we usually associate with that picture um, is are cute and cuddly, right? Um, almost like that little kind of stuffed animal. And so when we come to John 1.29, and we hear John the Baptist proclaim about Jesus, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My mind, the pictures that I get, um, honestly probably go more towards the stuffed animal lamb kind of picture, right? That's just what I picture. It's what I see. Um, <clears throat> And when I think of the story of the manger and Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, I, I, once again, I, I, there's that calmness, there's that sense of tranquility, there's that sense of peace. And um, however, when I think back to, I think Pastor Randall said it last week, um, that you can't really focus on the Christmas story, the nativity, without also focusing on the cross. And as I was preparing this, honestly, probably late in the week, <laughs> as I'm trying to figure out how do I bring all of this stuff together that I've been studying, um, I probably, I was kind of wondering why in the world did I pick this for like the Christmas message? Like, it, this doesn't seem to make sense. But even as Donnie said this morning, 
Um, we will just trust that God um, is sovereign and he um, has reasons and will guide um, what we're thinking and what we're learning about this morning. And so the reason we celebrate the birth of Jesus in our reality is because we know the end of the story, right? We know um, why he came. We know how the story ends. We celebrate the birth because it was the beginning of a glorious story of redemption for all of us who believe. Without the cross, without Jesus dying on the cross, the story of the birth would just be another baby born, right? There would be no significance to that story. So if you go back to John 1.29, I want you to try to imagine yourself in a small crowd, um, probably listening to John the Baptist as he um, preaches and shares and as he's baptizing people. You know, there's probably a, a small crowd of people around him, um, and he's, he's talking, he's speaking, and in mid-sentence, he just stops, and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away this, just in mid-sentence, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you were in that crowd that day listening to John the Baptist, you probably would have had a different perspective than I do on a lamb, right? And so um, <clears throat> that's what we're kind of going to go at today, um, and that you would have a different perspective if you were in that crowd because a lamb was a common animal used in the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem and throughout the history of Israel. Right? So uh, we're kind of going to take a little bit of a, a history lesson back to the Old Testament to kind of give us perspective to help us understand what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Um, and I mentioned that the Lamb was a common animal used in the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Just to give you a bit of perspective, um, what this would have been like for somebody standing in the crowd when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Um, we don't understand it because we don't have an altar where we sacrifice things on a regular basis, but every day in Jerusalem at the temple, two lambs were sacrificed, one in the morning and one in the evening, and those were called a burnt offering, just kind of as a, um, as a, as a way of saying kind of thank you to God in a sense. So two times a day, um, a lamb was offered as a burnt offering. On the Sabbath, which would have been every Saturday, another two lambs were offered in addition to the two that were already offered. So on every Saturday, that would have been four lambs that were offered. So every week, a minimum of 16 lambs were sacrificed. Every week. Um, 832 lambs a year. It's <clears throat> quite a bit. Um, also, accompanying every major feast, whether it was the Passover um, or the Feast of, uh, of Booths and the other different ones, almost every major feast, um, there was like six or seven of them throughout the year, there were another seven lambs offered as a burnt offering on top of the 16 that you already offered throughout the week. And then during the Feast of Booths, which was um, a time when they remembered coming out of, uh, when they were wandering in the wilderness, 14 lambs were sacrificed daily for seven days, and then on the eighth day, another seven lambs were sacrificed. So if you think of that, um, 
And then on top of all of that, you would have people bringing lambs as personal sacrifices as well, either as a sin offering um, or another burnt offering. Um, if I was coming to the temple, um, I would, you know, that would be an option for me to bring another a lamb as a sacrifice that God required. So um, I think it would be safe to say that there would probably be at least a couple thousand lambs every year sacrificed at the temple. And that's just the lambs. On top of um, a young bull was a common sacrifice. Um, goats were a common sacrifice, a young goat. Um, or if you couldn't afford either of those, there was pigeons and turtle doves. And um, I don't want you to get caught up in the sheer number or maybe like the amount of bloodshed that accompanies all this. That's not my point in telling you all of it. Um, I want you to understand that this just would have been a normal part of an Israelite's life in first century Israel, back when Jesus um, was walking the earth. Uh, the constant sacrifices would have been commonplace and normal to them. Not to us, but normal to them. Um, so when you think of John saying, behold, the Lamb of God, you would have a different perspective if you were in the crowd that day with John. And I would think if you were producing a movie um, of this kind of scene in John, um, which John the Baptist, you would probably insert today, you'd probably insert some flashbacks to help bring understanding of what is kind of going on so that the audience understands when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, there is some understanding. So today, like I said, we're going to go back to some of the Old Testament passages um, to help us understand what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Um, and to understand this phrase, the Lamb of God, we need to better understand the purpose of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And in all reality, something that I probably do not, have not done a very good job of trying to understand myself. Why were there so many sacrifices in the Old Testament? Um, if, you, if you know your history at all of um, God and the Israelites, uh, they were in slavery in Egypt for four Years. And if you have your Bible, you can kind of turn back towards Leviticus. That's where we're going next. Um, but after the Egyptians were in slavery for 400 years, um, God delivers them. He brings them out. Um, and when he's bringing them into the promised land, he gives them a specific, a specific set of laws um, and commands and systems to set in place on how they're supposed to live. Um, and a major part of God's plan for the Israelites was the sacrifices that they needed to make. If you look through Leviticus, um, you will find sacrifice after sacrifice for this reason and that reason and that reason. Um, and we, you can tend to kind of get bogged down in like all of this that we just don't seem to understand. But as the, as the Israelites came out of Egypt, the main question that has to be answered is, how can a holy God live among sinful people, right? He's bringing them out of Egypt. He's promising to be with them. He is a holy God. They are a sinful people. So how is this relationship going to work? And the sacrifices were kind of the answer to that question. And as we look back at the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's really eight themes that really come out. Um, that when you, the different types of sacrifices and how they're done, there's these eight themes um, are prominent and come out over and over again. There's the idea of sin. 
um, that because of our, um, that we have sinned as humans. There's things that we do wrong that violate and break God's um, commands. There's this idea of guilt, that because of our sin, there is guilt. And because of um, our sin, there is also a judgment that must be paid. Um, just like if you break the law in the United States, um, and there's a judgment, there's a penalty or a punishment for that, um, there is a judgment or a penalty for sin. There's this idea of satisfaction, that um, God must be, uh, his, his justice it must be satisfied in some way. Um, there's the idea of atonement, um, somebody um, taking and stepping in and making atonement, atoning for uh, my sin. There's the idea of forgiveness. There's the idea of reconciliation, and there's the idea of substitution that are mentioned over and over again. And we don't have time to look at each of these individually. Um, <clears throat> that might get a little boring in the details necessarily. So we're going to kind of see, uh, just look at a few verses, mainly from Leviticus, and then a little bit from Genesis as to um, how each of these themes is addressed. Um, so in Leviticus 5, verse 10, um, it talks about, at the beginning of Leviticus 5, it talks about what is necessary um, to bring a sin offering. And in Leviticus, the second part of verse 10, um, <clears throat> it says, In this way the priest will make atonement on his behalf for the sin he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Okay, if you think of those themes that we talked about, there's sin in there, there's atonement, there's forgiveness, um, there's in a sense that idea of that there is a guilt and judgment because of our sin. If you jump down a few verses to verse 17, it says, if someone sins without and without knowing it violates any of the Lord's commands concerning anything prohibited, he bears the consequences of his guilt. Um, Again, those idea of that judgment or guilt in because of our sin. Um, if you jump over to Leviticus 16, verse 21, um, this is talking about the Day of Atonement, one of those festivals that I mentioned. Um, and talking about the priest, it says, Aaron, the priest will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all of their sins. Um, once again, that idea of um, sin and confession, um, that there is a, a penalty and guilt for our sin. And if you go back just a little bit to Leviticus 10, um, verse 17, Moses is actually confronting a couple of um, Aaron's sons, who are also priests, um, and it says he was angry with them. Um, and in the second part of verse 17, it says, For it is this offering um, of the sin offering that they messed up on. He said, That offering is especially holy, and he, God, has assigned it to you to take away the guilt of the community and make atonement for them before the Lord. Um, so once again, you see those ideas of atonement and um, sin and satisfaction um, of God's judgment and God's justice. Um, and the other crazy thing, I mean, you could go back through, I mean, in all reality, you could go back to Adam and Eve, right, in Genesis, where God has to um, make clothes for Adam and Eve because of their sin, um, for he makes clothes out of animal skin for them. Um, or if you think of the last one there in Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham, right, when God um, is, is testing Abraham and he 
tells Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, um, and Abraham obeys, fully believing that God will uh, raise him from the dead. It's interesting, this idea of substitution is already seen in Genesis 22. In verse 7, Isaac says to, Ab- um, to his father, um, he says, at the end of verse 7, he says, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Um, Then the two of them walked on together. So even early on in Genesis, God is showing this idea that there is, can be a a substitution for um, the, the sin that we have against God. So the problem, like we said, is that God is holy and perfect. Um, but yet he promised to be with his people. And so how can he do that um, when they are sinful people that continually do wrong and continually break his commands? So the sacrifices were required in order to satisfy the penalty and the punishment for sin. Um, And that punishment is just and righteous, right? Because Because God is holy. So God made a way, despite of the Israelites' sin, for him to be with them, to dwell among them, okay? We have a word for that. It's called grace, right? There is a holy God who wants to dwell with his people, but because of their sin, um, they can't mix. Um, And so he provides a way in the Old Testament through these sacrifices to um, satisfy his demand for justice, Um, And as as crazy as that system is with all of the sacrifices and all of this stuff that they were supposed to do, um, it is still an act of grace. So as we transition back to the New Testament, we see that the constant sacrifices in the Old Testament were not completely sufficient. We need a better sacrifice, as John said, to take away our sin. So as we go back to John chapter 1, and we hear Jesus called the Lamb of God, do you hear that promise, that phrase, with a little bit of a different perspective, now that you know the history of what was going on in the Old Testament? John explains it even further in that verse in 129 when he says that he is not just the Lamb of God, but he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist understood that Jesus wasn't just another man who did good things and taught good things, that this was the Son of God who would sacrifice his life on behalf of us, on our behalf, because of our sin. And when we look at the New Testament, um, we learn through our reading that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that finally obtained our salvation. Okay, I'm going to run through some familiar verses, um, but if you want to turn to Hebrews Um, Chapter 10 um, is where we're going to end up. Um, So we understand that because of our sin, because of our actions, we are guilty before God, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also understand that the judgment for our sin is death, that punishment, the penalty. Um, The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the payment for sin is death. And in order to satisfy this judgment against us, this penalty against us, we need a substitute to step in for us to bring reconciliation, to bring forgiveness, and to bring atonement. 
Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. So if you turn with me to Hebrews 10, um, we were going to see the author of Hebrews tells us, shows us how Jesus' death on the cross was a better sacrifice than the ones of the Old Testament in the Old Covenant. Um, Hebrews 10 in verses 1 through 3, it says, Since the law, the Old Testament, the sacrifices he's talking about there, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of these realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sin, in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that if the sacrifices of the Old Testament were sufficient, they wouldn't have to keep doing them year after year, day after day, week after week. Because if they, it would have been if one sacrifice was sufficient, they wouldn't have to continually do it. Um, but in Jesus, um, we see that Christ's death, death was the true sacrifice we needed. I like that image that he uses there of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were kind of like a shadow. If you see, I mean, I've got several shadows of myself here. It's, it's kind of a vague outline that gives me a, a, a decent idea of the picture of what the shadow is. But the reality of me is a much clearer defined picture than the shadow we see. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were kind of like this shadow. It showed a little bit of what was to come. But Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was the sacrifice that we needed. And if you jump down just a couple verses to verse 9, it says in 9 through 12, He then says, talking about Jesus, he says, See, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, takes away the first, the sacrifices in the law of the Old Testament, to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest, talking about in the, um, in the temple, stands day after day, ministering and offer the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins, in contrast to the Lamb of God. And in verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> And the more I thought about um, this verse, uh, this idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God and in actuality, um, this thought just kind of came to me this morning as I was finishing um, preparing. Um, maybe this isn't such a weird Christmas message after all. When you understand the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices, um, the Old Testament festivals, uh, like I said, there was six or seven of them, were centered around historical events of God showing up on behalf of his people. Okay, you think of the Passover. Um, the Passover remembers when God saved the Israelites from the 10th plague um, and brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
Um, I mentioned the Feast of Booths, where um, the Israelites were remembering what God, how God provided for them when they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. They would actually, during the Feast of Booths, Israelites, Jewish people, set up and make up these temporary tents outside their house. And they sit and they eat in there, and a lot of times they sleep in there to remember what it was like to wander around in the wilderness. Um, But as I said, even these festivals, remembering what God has done for them, were always accompanied by sacrifices. Um, And we learn from Hebrews um, to remind them of their sin and their guilt and what God has done for them. So even though this coming week and in a few days, we are celebrating what God has done for us in bringing the Savior of the world into the world as a baby, in a manger, we must not also forget the sacrifice that that baby, that Savior, made on our behalf so we can be in the presence of a holy God. That sacrifice takes away our sin, it provides forgiveness, and reconciles us to God forever. Okay, so you may be thinking, okay, what does all of this mean for us today? Um, how does Jesus, as the Lamb of God, change the way I am supposed to live this week, this month, or um, even in the months ahead? And the funny thing is, is as you go down in Hebrews, we just talked about how Hebrews 10 is, Jesus is the better sacrifice. If you go down a few more verses, in verses 19 um, through 25, Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews explains, okay, because Jesus is sacrifice is the ultimate best sacrifice that did all of that for us. Now what? Um, in Hebrews ten nineteen it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And verse 24, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because of what Jesus has done for us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, let us be bold, right? Because of what Christ has done, we can boldly come before God um, in His presence as a holy God because Christ has taken away that guilt, that punishment, that judgment that we deserve. And we can come to Him in confidence, in prayer, um, and asking Him, and asking for Him to help us, and asking for His direction. Um, and the other thing um, that we can come to Him um, boldly with is even if you have never come before God, if you are not a, a Christian, if you have not accepted what God has done, you can still come before Him in boldness because of what Christ has done. Despite the fact that your sin has separated you from God, you can come to Him boldly knowing that your forgiveness and reconciliation with God has already been accomplished. Um, 
my guess is that there are probably people here today that have never come before God like this and accepted his forgiveness for your sin. Um, you know the wrong things that you have done make you guilty before God, and you know that your guilt demands judgment. Um, but the good news is, is that there is a sacrifice that has already been made that can um, take that judgment and guilt away. Um, and so uh, you, even as a unbeliever, can come to him with boldness when you're coming to accept the free gift that he has already given you. So he asks us to be bold. He asks us to be confident. We can be confident in our relationship with a holy God because he is faithful and he has already accepted Christ's sacrifice for us. That's what it says in verse 23. We hold on to the faith that we have with confidence because God is faithful. And the last one, um, let us be concerned about one another. Um, that great news that is done for us, now God is asking us to go and show that to the world around us through our concern for one another. Um, and when you think of the times that we're in um, with people having to stay home um, or people who in nursing homes that can't get out, um, that we need to show concern and love for one another, especially in these times. So um, this coming week, have you been reaching out to the people that God um, brings to your mind, right? Um, I was, can't remember his name. There was an older gentleman that was in church here shortly, um, Hugh Sheffield. Can't believe that came to me. Um, if you remember Hugh Sheffield, he called them holy hunches, right? It's like, oh, this person just comes to my mind, right? That's God um, prompting you to do something, to reach out, um, to be concerned for one another, to call somebody, to text somebody, to visit somebody that you are thinking about. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and as I mentioned, as we started the, uh, today with that nativity scene, um, and we remembered how it's just not complete without a lamb, um, <clears throat> the, the amazing thing is, is we know that the lamb in Bethlehem in the manger wasn't a lamb that was either laying in a stall or laying in the straw um, that had the furry white um, fur on him that was nice and soft. That's not the lamb that was in the manger. The lamb in Bethlehem that was in that manger was lying in the trough and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Um, and he would grow up to be the sacrifice that we need to take away our sin. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.